0: Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast brought to you by TasteWise. Today I'm talking to Miriam on our content and research team. Maybe you've seen her on the uh, webinars that we do or TasteWise Live that uh, we do every single week. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at why it's so important to take a look at consumer motivations and specifically what are some examples out there that we can take a look at um, and learn from. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Miriam.
1: Hello. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is this weird to, to do this in person
1: kind of yeah I'm used to, to seeing you all over zoom so this is great
0: with a couple of microphones uh in between us and exactly. uh and then an, and an iphone kind of shoddily uh propped up exactly yeah so um can you kind of kick us off by uh telling me a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day, because we're going to translate that into a lot of what we're going to be talking about.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, so as head of content here at TasteWise, um, that means that I, every day, get to explore trends, motivations, basically anything that's top of mind for consumers through our platform itself, and then create content that um, is useful for food and beverage professionals in the industry. So webinars, reports, um, you name it, uh, I put it together.
0: So it's really interesting because um, it kind of mirrors a lot of what our uh, customers do at the end of the day, and it's why we thought this conversation is going to be really useful. So a lot of our customers, what um, uh, what they do at the end of the day, whether they are Uh, consumer insights people or brand managers, or they have anything to do with new product development at uh, large food and beverage companies, Uh, they have to dig into uh, market research and they have to understand how are trends behaving and performing. Uh, And then they have to translate it into something that they can share with the broader team, right? Um, So... Let's first, uh, and we want to talk about why it's so important to understand consumer motivations. And we always talk about how consumer motivations are the underlying force beneath any trend. Um, And that if you want to capture something, you should be capturing the motivation of the consumer rather than the kind of uh, the trend itself. Um, I want to rattle off some of the examples that we always give. Um, So we always talk about like during COVID, one of the motivations was to recreate experiences that that were lost and then you had multiple trends that were answers to the question posed by the consumer motivation. So maybe that was cocktail kits or grazing boxes or different things that answered the consumer motivations. Um, Many times customers will ask us, how do they go about, like, what's the scientific way to kind of build your own trend? Typically, it is to find the emerging consumer motivation that fits your category and then see if can you construct something, whether that is a marketing construct or an actual product uh, for for that consumer motivation. But before we get to all of that, I want to ask you, um, and we recently did a whole big workshop about this, uh, when you kind of set out to take a look at uh, trends in the market right now. What are the first steps that you usually take in your research um, before even narrowing down your search to, to one specific thing? I think that in our spaces, like you're putting together a new market uh, trend report. Um, what are the first few steps that you take?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, do you mean specifically like on the platform or?
0: Um, so even, even before then, right? Because you, uh, you have to think about like what am I going to be focusing on? I think this part might be a little bit easier for, for someone who has already has their world of data filtered by a a certain category, right? Like I only focus on snacks or I only focus on like something that is uh, that is very, very specific. Um, Whereas you have to take a look at, um, let's take a look at the entire world of food and beverage and look for something interesting. So either through our platform or just in general, um, how do you go about doing
1: that? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, so I think when it comes to exploring food and beverage trends generally, there's just, there's so much noise out there to, to process through. So um, whenever we're thinking of a new idea, there's, you know, the trends we're seeing on, on social media, there's the, uh, the things that we maybe ourselves are making at home, there's the things we've heard about from friends, there's any number of things. Um, so I think the first step is really kind of getting clear about what it is that we're trying to look for. Um, and I think... Part of that um, is thinking about, you know, where we're going to be doing our research, where is that housed, um, what kind of data sources are we looking at. Um, it's always better, I think, to have, um, whenever you're you're tackling any sort of research problem, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, a trend, Um But that's what I do in my work. um, It's always better to have a range of sources that speak to whatever you're researching, right? Um, So I think my first step is just to get clear, you know, what it is that I'm actually looking at um, and where am I looking for the answers I'm looking for.
0: Um, So you kind of start really, really broad and then um, start narrowing down the research. And when you have, uh, like, for example, now we... Um, so in uh, in August we're going to be releasing a big um, alternative protein report, um, and it was basically up to you to look at the market and say like, what are we going to be talking about? So let's use that as an example. Like why did you choose alternative protein? Why do you think that is particularly interesting right now?
1: Sure. Um, so a lot of that came from just my my general research in the food and beverage industry. And it wasn't something that that came with a lot of effort. Like every other word that comes out of someone's mouth right now is alternative proteins. Um, if you even look in the taste wise fridge right now, like, you know, soy protein, pea protein, alternative meats, you name it. Um, even in my everyday life, that's something that's really, I think, top of mind.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because I think you're hitting on a point where, um, like, we talk about data all the time, and we talk about, like, a really scientific way of doing things. But there's also a value of um, the, like, where you start, like, maybe, maybe the more qualitative part of your research. And you shouldn't discount the, uh, the value of that. And I think an interesting example is, um, is Freshly. Um, so freshly, we had Rachel on the podcast, um, and uh, that was a really fascinating episode because she was talking about how she both uses uh, tools like TasteWise to to do research, um, but she also just travels <laughs> to yeah, see yeah. what are people, how are people talking about um, about food. Um, so something no. that I
1: actually really, really like about the work that we're in is that, um, you know, trend research and new product development and all of that good stuff that we work on um, in food and beverage. It's so much of an art and a science together. Um, you know, when we talk about data, we're not at all discounting the role of of kind of gut feeling, if you'll excuse the pun. Um, and how important it is to really be plugged into, you know, people are making decisions about food and beverage because it connects to something emotional for them. And we need to be clued into that in our own work as well. So um, gut feelings and and things that we see out in the market and things we're excited about, that's that's important too. Um, And data can be used to kind of back that up, of course, but having both in conversation is really important.
0: Yeah. And that kind of leads us into like why consumers do what they do, right? Um, So you've been looking at a few really interesting examples of why are uh, consumer motivations so, so important. Um, So can you first frame for us uh, how do you define consumer motivations in as it relates to food and beverage trends? And then maybe walk us through an example.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, so motivation is basically anything that pulls somebody to make a choice about what they're eating and drinking, what they're putting on their plate, what they're putting in their mouths, um, what they're feeding their families, anything that pulls them to that choice. Um, and that can be defined by any number of reasons, right? There's the emotional Reasons, perhaps, which I think are, are really interesting, and we'll get to in a second. Um, but there's also the the health reasons, um, nutritional reasons, you know, the dietary reasons, things like that. Um, or mental. Or mental, exactly. Yeah, uh, everything from you know, you're out with friends and you want a really great experience, and maybe that has something to do with the aesthetics of your food. Maybe that has something to do with, um, of course, the taste, but also you know, the vibe of, of wherever you are, um, ranging all the way to a parent who's trying to make. Um, something really tasty for their toddlers at home. Um, and, you know, I, that's an example you always give that I love. Um, so, yeah, a, a motivation, I think, encompasses all of that in one.
0: Yeah. So what's a what's a good example for the importance of uh, consumer motivations?
1: Yeah. Um, there's not just one. There's many, many. Um, so one that I'm really excited about right now, which is a little bit more, I think, ethereal maybe, um, but something that I think is really important to watch right now is the role of nostalgia in food and beverage. Um, and you might be thinking, okay, that's a little artsy-fartsy, touchy-feely, but I actually think it's really important right now. And, and if we think about the wider market and not just in food and beverage, but generally, especially coming through COVID, um, nostalgia is a big deal. We're seeing even now on, you know, on HBO Max, right? There's, uh, you know, the Friends reunion just happened. Sex in the City is coming back. Gossip Girl just happened. These are all shows that for a lot of people and for a huge segment of the, the TV watching world, um, those are really nostalgic shows, right? They grew up with those shows. They really relate to those characters. Um, And I think that that says a lot about what people are are craving right now. We've just gone through COVID. Um, Some of us are are still kind of in it. Um, We were in lockdowns. We were looking for ways to connect to friends and family. Um, And a lot of us had a a lot of time on our hands, right? Um, And I think when people got in the kitchen, they were looking for those comforting recipes that took them back to, you know, maybe, maybe it was coming home from school and having, you know, a sandwich on the table or cookies or whatever it was from their mom. Um, So we're seeing that nostalgia actually is up 20% um, than pre-pandemic when it comes to food and beverage. So people are explicitly looking for nostalgic food and beverage um, at a rate 20% higher than pre-pandemic.
0: This is people talking specifically about the word nostalgia on social media?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And anything that RAI has determined to be, um, you know, related to nostalgia. So whether that means kind of childhood in context, like a childhood recipe or something like that. Um, But all of that's within the umbrella of nostalgia, for sure.
0: Yeah. So um, so it's not just specifically like a brand that um, because all of us, I think, have uh, like very specific commercials or Mm -hmm. brands that were very popular um, when we were kids and kind of like bring those back, even in, in the marketing that kind of looks like it did in the 80s or something like that. That could be one interpretation of it. Um, but it can also be just recipes that are specific to us. Like I, I think last time I talked about um, this dish my mom used to make. My mom is from Uruguay mm-hmm. and she used to make this. Um, it's called like a, it's called a tortilla, but it's not like a tortilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's That's this okay. uh, egg and um, and potato potato. Um, I know the Hebrew word for it, ashtida. I'm looking <laughs> like casserole, for casserole. Yeah. Casserole, yes, <laughs> that would be the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's like, that's incredibly nostalgic for me. Right. I mean, um, not maybe something that scales, right. Because I'm not talking about like, I'm not referencing a, a specific brand, sure. um, but it is, but it still kind of touches on, what is currently driving me to make something new?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the really exciting things that we're seeing right now is that none of uh, the consumer motivations that we're seeing that are that are trending or important to consumers exists in a vacuum. So you might feel that nostalgia um, and you might also be someone who really needs uh, a vegan version of that, right? You're not gonna throw veganism out the door for, for nostalgia. So you're looking for a way to combine those two things together. Um, an example for me is that I grew up... Uh, any Americans who are listening, you might, uh, you might you know, feel your way into this as well. Um, mac and cheese, Kraft mac and cheese, loved it. My mom hated making it for me because she was like, this is chemicals in a box. This yeah. is not what you need. <laughs> no offense to, to Kraft mac and cheese. Um, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and as I've gotten older, uh, you know, I, I try to eat gluten-free. I try to eat dairy-free. So what am I going to do, right? I want this nostalgic experience, but I also need something that's a little bit on the healthier end. Um, and we're seeing a lot of consumers in the wider market looking for that combination as well. Um, yeah,
0: and it's not just the um, maybe it's not like very specifically for for just this example, but it's uh, um, I think there was an example that you came up with uh, a while ago for a presentation that uh, that we did about uh, I think it was Pop Tarts, um, where is we looked at is at what is the specific application for a certain product. Um, and then we saw that they actually put it on the box, and I think it was birthday cake. Yeah, and it was mm-hmm. the same. It was still the same product, right? It was. It was pop-
1: Duncan. I think Duncan Hines cake mix, right? Oh, it's, cake mix, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Not pop tarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um And th- but it it was, it's cake, right? But they called it out very specifically on the box that this is for birthday cake, right? right? Something, something like that. So the combination of understanding the consumer motivation maybe in this case it will be nostalgia for something that you used to uh, used to love when you were a kid Um, combined with really understanding how are people applying your product uh, to their day-to-day recipes and calling that out very specifically that doesn't have to be birthday cake and can also be that this particular dish is good for a ketogenic diet or something, something like that. So the combination of these can be really powerful. Yeah,
1: and the fact that consumers are discovering these things on their own too, right? Uh, the things that are on the box is, is important. And hopefully when someone's created a product and created their their packaging, they've thought a lot about how consumers will use it. But um, we're seeing, you know, lots of really interesting examples of, of people taking something from the market and then putting their own spin on it entirely that then takes off, which I think is is really cool. Um, So being able to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of not only uh, you know, how consumers are engaging with your product in a retail space, right? How they're buying it or what they're seeing when they're buying, but how they're actually using it at home is, is really interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting point about retail that we're, that we're seeing um, retail kind of having diminishing returns as a data source to inform innovation, yeah. right? Because if something is selling very well on retail, that's great. Um, but that, that reports on innovation that happens 18 months ago. Right, it doesn't talk about uh, what's going to be popular and what's emerging right now. So um, when we talk to, so we are very fortunate to, to have the chance to work with companies like uh, uh, like uh, Pepsi and Nestle and, and Kraft Heinz and a lot of these uh, large CPGs, um, and a lot of them are these amazing, like forward thinking uh, innovators in their space. That's why it's so exciting to to work with them, and they don't necessarily care about um, what's selling well now? I mean, they care from like a pipeline perspective. They have to to support the business. But when they're talking about um, what's going to be popular in the next round of uh, product developments, um, never have I seen a space where they think so many months forward. They think like eighteen months forward. Whether that in some in something like um, meal kits, like uh, we were talking about, freshly yeah. or. You know, things that are just being innovative on the shelf like uh, uh, companies like uh, Campbell's or or Nestle that are just incredibly innovative companies with these amazing culinary teams. So what do you think is another great example for...
1: um, Wait, before we get there, actually, I want to say one thing in response to that. Um, I think a really great example that I've seen um, when it comes to how retail data falls short um, is, you know, go back to March of 2020. Everyone was buying, what, canned green beans, tuna fish, if it was canned, you name it, people were getting it because they were scared, right? They wanted to have their their pantry stocked with things. Um, and if someone looks at a report, you know, 18 months from March 2020, and sees this huge increase in pandemic era buying, okay, you know, we've kind of we've kind of missed the mark. The the opportunity to create, let's say, really engaging recipes for how to use tuna fish at home for nostalgic, whatever, right? Um, like that opportunity was lost. So having an understanding of how people are actually using things when they get home um, I think is a lot more valuable in a lot of cases especially when we see these kind of uh, time-based like for the pandemic right time-based spikes I think is really is really valuable and more valuable than retail
0: It's a great example yeah so um, so what else do you want to walk us through yeah in, your, in examples
1: got a couple oh. um, so I think sustainability is a really big one and um, we were talking about alternative proteins uh, a few minutes ago. Um, and sustainability is, a, is really uh, top of mind, and will continue to be as our as our you know climate change continues to be a huge uh, impact on the food and beverage industry, but also on on lives of consumers. Right, yeah. um, climate change, unfortunately, I think is going to be with us for for a while, and is something we need to to keep track of. Um, but sustainability, particularly, I think, is playing out differently in the food service space and uh, in consumer kitchens or or buying behaviors, um, consumer kitchens or eating behaviors. <laughs> Um, So sustainability on menus is actually down 27%. So in menu mentions of sustainable products since the pandemic started. Um, But we're actually seeing that when it comes to consumer conversations, that's still growing 10% year over year. Um, So for whatever reason, since the pandemic started, food service has kind of tossed out the baby with the bathwater. They're saying, all right, sustainability, not something we're gonna be focusing on right now. But surprisingly, consumers actually are still interested in it. They're talking about it. Um, they're, they're eating sustainable products. How
0: do you, how do you find uh, sustainability uh, performs if you're measuring it against like health?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So sustainability actually used to be pre-pandemic was at a higher rate, um, which was more competitive with health. But in food and beverage, health uh, is the kind of primary driver for thinking about just sheer penetration within um, social conversations and also, I think, within menus. Um, So health is is absolutely a a bigger driver, I would say, right now than sustainability for food and beverage consumption. Um, But health is actually a part of sustainability. So consumers are eating sustainable food and beverage, not just for the health of the planet, um, but also for the health of their own bodies, which I think is really interesting.
0: I wonder, um, it's because we used to, for example, look at the drivers for like veganism, for example. And I think that at one point, maybe this was... um, I don't know if it's still relevant, but at some point we saw that health is a larger driver for veganism than sustainability is, right? Like the health of yourself yeah. versus the health of um, of the planet. Um, and I wonder um, if that is still true today.
1: Yeah, it's still true. But I think the more interesting question is what are the drivers for sustainability, right? Veganism, we know it's the top penetrator diet for the yeah. U.S. Um, it's, it's here to stay. But if we look at sustainability itself... Um, Sixteen percent of sustainability discussions, so consumers talking about sustainable food and beverage. Sixteen percent of that mentions health, um, which is a was a fairly high number. Um, vegan is a little bit under that. I think it's about fifteen percent. But when so we
0: sixteen percent of conversation about sustainability mm-hmm. are also about health
1: is, are also about health. So people are eating sustainable food and beverage for, for health reasons. Um, okay. But if we look at climate change, which I would expect to be, you know, just as high, that's only 5% of conversations. Um, so only 5% of conversations about sustainable food and beverage actually, you know, specifically name climate change, which I think is a really big spread.
0: That that 16%. Do you see that rising or do you think that is kind of like where it's going to be?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's, It's rising a little bit. Um, I think as we kind of emerge from the pandemic, we'll we'll see how consumers relate to to health and sustainability. Um, So I'm not willing to kind of put money on where that will be in the next couple of months here. Um, But yeah, I think these are are interesting motivations to watch.
0: It's interesting because essentially what this means is that um, a big driver to eating something that uh, markets itself as a sustainable product is people saying, if this is a sustainable product, it also means that this is a healthy product for me. So it could be that when we're thinking about the marketing uh, or messaging for for a new product, because these can all be the same things, right? Because if we're uh, basically anything that we can promote as um, vegan or, you know, like planet-friendly, I think I saw on uh, on some uh, mention, or sustainable, the question is... um, what's going to be my main uh, like in, in my type of marketing we call it like a wedge what's going to be my wedge in the market that this is the thing that you want to buy if you uh, want to support sustainability or this is the thing that you want to buy if you uh, want to kind of leverage sustainability f- to, to lead a healthier lifestyle yeah. but those are two different things right and you, earlier you gave my example for <laughs> looking uh, looking up lunch for my kids yeah. right and they um, you know, the the focus for me was finding something that is uh, easy to make um, and that is still healthy, right? That is not just like uh, here in Israel we have these like um, uh, frozen schnitzel, like in a in a bag, yeah. right? That everybody just makes all the time. I don't know how bad it is. I know it's not the greatest, right? So I was looking for uh, I was looking for something a bit healthier than that 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 I can still you know scale, Uh, maybe it's like my my marketing mind uh, (laughs) merging with my parent mind, but that I could still make on a daily basis and I can still kind of diversify on. But the words very specifically, uh, quickly, easily, healthy, toddlers, like those keywords specifically drove me to a set of recipes that have now increased my consumption frequency for those products. So it's really important to understand um, for your audience, that it could be Gen Z, it could be uh, working millennial parents, or it could be um, any, anything like that. Um, what are these specific words, and what consumer motivations do they tie? Are they tied to, and how can that inform both the product itself, the packaging, and also the the recipes that you put out in order to promote them?
1: I think it's also really important to acknowledge, and in, in that really, I think important example that you just gave, that consumers really. Um, have a huge amount of access to digital information now, right? Um, it's it's almost like doesn't need to be said that we live in a digital information. We live in the era of digital. We live in a digital information. We live information. In, a, in the matrix is where we live. Um, but people have a huge amount of access to you know the health qualities of of you know the things that they want to eat. They they know. I like to say they're armchair experts, people know a lot more than previous generations. Um, And they're looking for really specific things that can be customized to their needs, right? Um, So I remember even, you know, if you go back 10 years ago, um, when I was starting kind of to think about being gluten-free or dairy-free for health reasons, it was really, really, really hard for me to find uh, those things. So I had to make a lot of compromises, right? I had to give up on things that I, I wanted to eat or I had to find kind of alternative routes. Um, But now I can stroll into pretty much, you know, I, I live in a a suburban city with kind of the local neighborhood grocery store. Um, And even there I can find, you know, oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, um, you know, sesame milk I tried yesterday. Uh, Like I have a lot more access to the things that I want. And as such, I see that in myself, my own behavior, I'm starting to expect that from the brands that I, that I consume. Um, so I think that's really important to acknowledge that consumers are a lot more aware of not only, you know, health stuff, but sustainability stuff like they they know what they want and they know what they're looking for.
0: OK, so we talked about nostalgia being up uh, about 20 uh, percent and we talked about sustainability, which is um, obviously something that we all kind of know and love.
1: 20 percent pre-pandemic, 98 percent year over year.
0: That's nostalgia.
1: It's just nostalgia, which I think is really interesting. So even... Post-post-pandemic, let's say. I don't know if we're there yet, but it's even increasing even more, almost 100% year over year.
0: So COVID has, has made us nostalgic for our childhood.
1: Yeah, so. right? That's Here really know. There's a lot of psychological stuff there to unpack.
0: But. That's interesting on a, like a different level. Right? That's maybe not on the Food Intelligence podcast. <laughs> That's maybe just on like for the... For my
1: therapist. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Let me take a note of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, because I, I gave that example about that casserole uh, which is really, uh, it was really just because, like literally, my mom made it uh, recently for this family event that we had put together, and uh, and yeah, the the feelings that it kind of brings up, if I really think about it, it is it does feel amplified, right? Because in uh, we're fortunate enough to to be in a in a country where we're able to to get together a bit more often now, and I think that's coming in a lot of different places, um, but. Um, uh, and I and I think that for this very specific example, I think it was um, she was looking for like she she made it herself. But then she wanted to make a lot of it. And she was like, I'm not going to do all this work. Um, and she found through Instagram, uh, my 70 year old mom, uh, someone who's selling like these very specific Latin American dishes.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: That were that are. Apparently, I'm not the only kid who liked them, right? Amazing, um, yeah. Yeah, so, and it was, (laughs) I thought it was such an interesting example. And then she bought a whole bunch of them, and we, uh, we all had them at this family event. And it's a really interesting example of, like, a microcosmos of this one guy in Israel that was able to tap into, like, this nostalgic drive, like, this consumer motivation, and was able to turn that into a lot of business, and we're seeing a lot of bigger companies go this route as well um, when they're tapping into to very specific motivations. Very recently, there was um, an article on VentureBeat um, that talks about how Pepsi, you know, maybe the biggest food and beverage company uh, in Ever. the world. Yeah, probably right. I mean, there's there. I think they're they're the biggest. Um, how they use artificial intelligence and how they use tools like TasteWise uh, in order to understand consumer motivations and put that into uh, the products that they're putting out there. For them specifically, it was the line of uh, vegan snacks uh, called Off the Eden Path, um, which is a really, really uh, exciting line of products that they were able to develop um, by understanding exactly these things that we're talking about here, right? So if you think about... The positive effect of something like that, um, they're able to give consumers exactly what they're asking for, what they need, or they in the article, they frame it as like what consumers don't know that they want, um, or maybe uh, because it uh, comes back to, you know, uh, Ford said, if you ask people what they want, they said they just want faster horses, right? right? They didn't know they wanted cars, <laughs> right? right? So yeah. uh, so Pepsi kind of takes that a step further and says, okay, we're going to give people what they still don't know that they want because they're not asking people, hey, what do you want? Because then they would say, yeah, we want more canned stuff because we are, you know, we're scared sure. of the pandemic. They're giving them something that answers a deeper consumer motivation. Yeah. Right. Um, Which is able to sell better, but also is able to give people exactly what they want, which in the end uh, reduces waste. Yeah. Right. Because they're not buying tons of canned goods that they don't need and then throwing them away. I went all over the place there. I hope that. No, that I hope that thought made sense.
1: Um, I actually want to I want to kind of follow one of the points that you brought up there um, about the the guy that your mom found on Instagram, right? Yep. Um, who tapped into, you know, this big fancy term of consumer motivations. What likely happened is that, you know, he also has a kid who loves this, you yep. know, this tortilla dish. Um, and I, I think that's what's really beautiful about, uh, about food, right? That there's something really emotional and um, really tied to community about all of this. Um, and I think people use food and beverage and I think are a lot more aware of it now, post, post-COVID or during COVID, um, that food really plays a huge role in how we relate to one another, right? Um, we may not have even realized how important it was to you know, grab a quick lunch with a coworker when we were in the office until we didn't have that opportunity anymore, yeah. right? Or, or meet your mom for your you know weekly dinner or be able to go out with the kids or whatever it is, right? Um, and I think that that points to why Nostalgia is really growing because people people are trying to approximate, you know, these experiences um, through food and beverage.
0: Was there uh, another one last example that uh, you had that uh, you wanted to walk us through?
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think cocktail kits are a really interesting one. Um, We actually did a report about this back in in early 2020. Um, And we were interested then to see if this was a a trend that would last. Um, And I think if we look at the underlying motivations for cocktail kits, we're going to be seeing lots of different iterations of this. Even, you know, once the world, God willing, opens back up and we're able to, you know, go out to bars, I don't think we're going to see a drop off in things like cocktail kits. It might not be cocktail kits itself, but it's going to be something similar to that. Um, and that has a lot to do with, I think, experiential eating and drinking that are tied intimately to these social experiences. So think about March, April, 2020. Um, we were all inside of our homes, keeping each other and ourselves safe. Um, and I remember this was the boom of you know, Zoom happy hours. I remember there was like you know, four a week and it got to the point where we were all really tired of Zoom happy hours. Um, but it was definitely something that was going on. Um, and a way to make that feel more interactive, or you were able to share that experience, not just over the, you know, the pixels of your screen, but you were doing an activity together was cocktail kits. Um, So something that I want to note for us that I think is actually really interesting, and this just came out of my research, um, that cocktail kits actually started as an independent restaurant trend, which we might sort of know based on our own own experiences. Um, But cocktail kits were mentioned on uh, the menus or the digital presence of smaller independent restaurants about double that of chains. And that's even true to, to today, um, that independent restaurants really took this idea and ran with it because they knew they knew their consumers. They knew who they were missing. You know, the local bar down the street knew that, you know, yeah. Frank, who comes in every day, Friday at six, probably wanted something to do with his friends, right? Um, and were able to create these experiences. So um, I think lots of different uh types of establishments in food service, have a sense of what their consumers need. Um, independent restaurants really took that and ran with it. Um, and we see that the market really responded well to it. So the the top motivations for, for cocktail kits are everything from local, right? Makes sense. Um, fun, there's that social experience as well. Gourmet, right? If you're you wanna not just have your usual, I don't know, what's your drink of choice?
0: Uh, An old fashioned.
1: Right, so maybe you have your your old fashioned recipe, but maybe you want an old fashioned that's a little more new fashioned, if you will, right? That's a great reason to bring in a little bit gourmet cocktail kit, Um, happy hours, whatever. So the point here is that a cocktail kit, I think, really taps into that consumer motivation for fun, for social experience, really taps into also experiential eating, which is kind of having a moment of consumption that's about a lot more than just what you're eating, but the experience around it. And I think that we're going to be seeing that a lot more moving forward.
0: Yeah, I love how that is um, the data-driven explanation of why when I moved to a new apartment, you and the rest of the team, (laughs) you got me a cocktail kit.
1: Right, and you loved it, right? I did. (laughs) Right, it was a great example.
0: Yeah. Um, And it's also it's the you know, the the phrase that you coined uh, the slingshot effect, right? Like pre and post pandemic um, of a trend that um, was uh, kind of uh, nascent in the in the pandemic. Another word I learned from you. Um, And (laughs) and then after the pandemic, um, it did see a rise and then sort of plateaued into um, into like like solidifying itself as part of the landscape, right? Like right. not really declining, not really rising anymore. Just like this is a part of the food and beverage landscape yeah. like trend landscape. Health right is now. a really
1: great example of that. Health was already important to consumers pre-pandemic, but now it's, it's at a rate much, 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 much higher than pre-pandemic.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So I think uh, we can kind of wrap up there. I do want to mention a few things that we have coming up that are uh, really exciting. So first of all, uh, if any of this sounds interesting in terms of uh, the way that we do the research, we do um, a weekly session where we just choose essentially a trend like um, keto or uh, coffee or, you know, hard uh, seltzer a, we
1: did recently. Heart yeah.
0: seltzer was the, the last one that we did. Um, and we just kind of dig into it. We take 30 minutes. You can treat it as kind of like your weekly uh, research session uh, with Ron and Miriam. Um Yeah, we need to get like a... That's a
1: McDonald's jingle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, copyrights, uh, infringement. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So... Um, You're definitely welcome to to join us on that. You can find the link to that on tastewise.io or maybe if there are show notes somewhere around here, we'll uh, we'll put them there as well. Um, But other than that, um, stay tuned. We have a few really interesting guests that are going to be coming up in the future episodes. And if there's anything specific that you'd like us to talk about, um, we really want to use this kind of platform to dig into trends and create things that are going to be useful for you Uh, feel free to just reach out to us either look us up on on LinkedIn or you can reach us uh reach out at live at tastewise.io um to let us know what you want us to talk about but with that uh Miriam thank you so much for taking the time and doing the research to walk us through it yeah thank
1: you this is great
0: awesome see you in the next one everybody